0: While we were in worship the other day and I was feeling particularly burdened, these words came back from a message. So I wanted to play them for you now and then share something with you that I hope helps you the way that it helped me. Is that fair enough? Yeah, Say, that's fair, pastor. That's fair. Okay. He this is why he's not smiling. <laughs> he wants to impress his will upon me. You know, he, wants, he wants me on the road. <laughs> what he wants to do is didn't stop my guard, wow. Because if I cannot breathe, I cannot fight. That's it. He wants to hit my body. The adversary wants to hit the body. That's it. He wants to hit the body because the vital organs are there. And he wants to make you not be able to breathe. He wants to hit you individually. He wants to hit us as a body. And he wants to make us not breathe. So what do you do? Do you take it? Do you take it? (laughs) No. <laughs> See, he's relentless. Oh, he won't give up. He won't give up until he until he makes you not breathe. But <laughs> at some point, at some point, you gotta say, "That's enough. That's enough. That's enough, right?" And you mount a attack. It's not enough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, fight, fight, what the fighters are, are trained to do. Right? Back into a corner is they're trained to clinch, turn, and mount an offensive attack. Right. Clinch, turn, remember of offensive attack? <laughs> 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 clinch, they want to take hold. Take hold of their adversary, their adversity. Right? Turn it, and mount an of offensive attack. <laughs> <Yeah>. You understand? <laughs> you understand? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Amen. So the Lord said to me, really clearly, clench, turn, and mount an offensive. The Lord said, clench, turn, mount an offensive. When you're on the ropes, you have to learn to embrace that problem. You're going to have to learn how to turn towards a promise. And you're going to have to learn how to act on that promise, which is to mount an offensive. I want to show you what that looks like in a few places in the Word, and then we're going to go right into worship. I'm going to tell you, though, that when the Lord authentically deals with you, it doesn't need to take hours. It, does, it doesn't even need to take uh, long minutes. He can literally speak the words "clinch," turn, mount, and offensive, and it changed everything for you. I mean, everything. That's because He's the Lord. Just a drop of His presence will change everything about you. I'm hoping tonight to inspire you to do something this, and we're not going to get into doctrinal dodgeball tonight, but the idea that says you just don't receive it, or it's, it's not really there, don't speak it into existence. Friends, faith doesn't deny problems. It never has. It embraces that the problem is real and the solution is bigger. It reasons that God is able. I know you've all heard not to even mention that you have a cold. Well, if you're snotting down your face, you don't have to mention it. We can see it. Christians are not stupid, and we don't deny the empirical evidence. We just believe our God is bigger than the empirical evidence. And I don't want to get off on what others teach. That's not the point. I want to tell you that God never tells you to act like there is not a problem there. He tells you to acknowledge the problem, clench it. Pull it in. Grab his promise and turn on it and mount an offensive. I want to show you that in the word in at least three places. And then we're going to go back into worship. Is that okay? Okay, starting in 2 Chronicles 20 and in verse 10. This is Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is praying. He is in the 850s B.C. And he is about to be attacked. Anybody in here under an attack? If you're not now, if you're in the body of Christ, you will be. Here comes verse 10. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? Listen to this. For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Is that clinching the problem? Now, you could say with all of your uh, theology, if you want, that we simply say, no, we're not going to speak life into that problem. We're going to act like it's not even there. That is not what this righteous king did. He drug his problem right before the Lord. He pulled it in close to him, the same way that a heavyweight fighter who is on the ropes has to tie up the enemy's arms by pulling him close. And then he's going to turn. The turn comes when we've got a promise from God. And for every problem, there is a promise. Our king has left us with a better covenant. Our king has left us with a divine word in his spirit in us. Look at verse 13. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. Oh my goodness. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel. and Zechariah, the son of Binianiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mattaniah, a Levite and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. Do you notice that God did not deny the army? God didn't say, oh, no, no, there's no army. God acknowledges the problem. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz. And you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jerul. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord God will be with you. How many of you have ever got a promise and you said, great, it's it's the battle of the Lord's. I don't have to do anything. Wrong. He says, the battle is the Lord's. You won't have to fight. Now go out and face them. We clench the problem. We pull it close to us. We acknowledge what it is. We say, Lord, I can't fix it. I need your grace. I need your mercy. And when he speaks to you a promise, the situation begins to turn and now you know how to act. You know what direction to move in. You know, David said, you're not defying me. You're defying the armies of the living God. You're defying God. But David still had to throw a rock. Did David sink it in the man's head or did God's? Did God do it? It was God's power, but it was David's hand. God delivers you as you walk in obedience to the promise he gave. You have to clench your problem. Pull it close. Tell him, Lord, I am depressed and I don't want to be depressed. And then his promise will come to you. I've anointed you with joy, the oil of joy in the presence of your companions. He'll say, um, pray continually, be joyful always, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And as tight as you pulled that problem to you, you can now step around it, turn on it, and you begin to move in that promise. Amen. And as you move in the promise, something will happen. God's grace will give you victory where you were suffering defeat and were on the ropes. I went from discouraged to encouraged in a millisecond because the heavens spoke to me. Clench, turn, mount an offensive. You don't have to believe that this is going to be a lifelong struggle. As fast as you can clinch it, turn on it, and mount an offensive, you can win. Look at verse 18. Jehoshaphat this is what it looks like to mount an offensive Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord then some of the Levites from the Kohathites and the Korites stood up and praised the Lord the God of Israel with a very loud voice. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Number number one, they're going out to face it. Now look at how they're going to face it. Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith or trust in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. What does it look like when God fights a battle for you? He upholds you in it. Have faith in his prophets. Do you just have faith in the Lord? No, you have faith in the Lord and every other man that ever spoke rightly about his word and encouraged you. And you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for what? For the victory? To praise him for the outcome? To praise him for the splendor of his holiness. Friends, that will elevate us Right? Have you ever been discouraged because too many of your friends are falling by the wayside? Ever been discouraged because in your battle with sin, you're struggling hard enough, much less seeing people fail around you? Clench, turn, and mount an offensive. As they went out at the head of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for His love endures forever. As they began to sing and to praise... The Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading. They acknowledged their problem and their helplessness to it before God. Why do you clinch when you're on the ropes? Because you're getting worn out. Because you're losing. Because counterpunching's not working. Some fighters fight well off the ropes. They actually prefer it. But most of the time, if you're backed against the ropes, it's because the enemy's offense is outdoing your defense. So it's time to grab it, pull it to you, acknowledge that problem, turn on it with the promise of God, and then act on that promise of God. That is offense. Most people, quite honestly, stop when they receive the promise of God. They say, well, the Lord said he's going to do it. I'll just wait for him to do it. Not good enough. That's clinching and turning, but the same enemy who was wearing you out before is going to keep. You're going to keep. You're going to dance. Is what's going to happen? Do you want to dance with the enemy or do you want to win? Yeah. See, I, I want to win. Turn with me to Isaiah 37. Say there when you're there. In Isaiah 37, starting in verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter. We're now in 720 BC, a Assyrian warlord named Sennacherib, or Sennacherib, if you like, or Snickerib, if you think it's funny, has threatened Hezekiah in the worst possible ways. Uh, it's indecent to even read what is there, except it's the holy word of God. Suffice it to say, Sennacherib's battlefield commander talked like a seventh grade boy, Okay? <coughs> Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Does that sound like he didn't acknowledge the problem or he did? He spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. Listen to this next part. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to all these peoples and their lands. So much for just don't receive it, huh? I was working in a workplace in 1996, and my buddy was bleeding through his clothes with the kind of ailment that you don't like to tell people that you have. He went to our boss, who was an occasional church attender at a certain kind of church, and he said, I need to go home. And she said, Why? He said, I'd rather not tell you, but I do have personal time. She said, If you don't tell me, you can't go. He said, I have a physical ailment that is hurting me and it's kind of embarrassing. She said, just don't receive it. Okay. He had been born again a couple months. He came back. He said, You know, Eric, what do you think I should say? I said, Tell her it's too late. They already landed. <laughs> Church, just don't receive it. What what could you put? That is not what this man did. He said, it is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples in their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms on the earth may be known that you alone Oh, Lord, our God. Let me ask you, if you just never received it, if you never clinched it, you never pulled it to, how do you go give the healing testimony? I got healed of what I never had? Right. See, this is the problem. As Christians, we don't want to be offended. We don't want to admit when we are. As Christians, we don't want to be hurt. We don't want to admit when we are. As Christians, we don't want to be sick. We don't want to admit when we are. We don't want any kind of perceived weakness. We're the perfected work of Christ, except we know we're not. When we can embrace what is killing us and say, this is eating my lunch, but nevertheless, Lord, you have a promise for me. And find that promise, now you can turn on it and mount an offensive. Look at verse 33. This here comes the promise. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city. Or shoot an arrow here. He will not come up before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of my servant, David. This is clinching the problem, turning on it with the promise of God. And you want to know where the offensive is in this one? Look at Second Chronicles. Starting in chapter 32, say there when you're there. Just before I get to that, have you ever heard the idea that if you're having these kind of... What did Hezekiah do? Hezekiah must have done something terribly wrong to have Sinasherah outside his walls. What must those people have done to have all of their kids with strep throat, to have flat tires, to have broken windows, to have, what did those people do? And don't act like you've not had that thought. You know, is that God trying to get their attention or is it the devil attacking them? Have you never had that thought? Okay, I'm the only one, but I've had that thought. I've, first thing I do when there's a problem in my house is go, oh my God, what did I do? I ask him. It's almost an insult to him sometimes though, isn't it? Like dad wants to punish you while you're already struggling. I want you to hear this first verse of the 32nd chapter speaking of the time Sennacherib is marching against Hezekiah. After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria came and invaded Judah. What did Hezekiah do to deserve Sennacherib coming? He had acted faithfully. He had become dangerous to the enemy. He had stood his ground and won a few, and so the enemy wanted to bump him off. And now that he's against the ropes, he grabbed hold of Sinusherab's threat, and he turned on it with the promise of God. And what you see in the 20th verse is him going on the offensive. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. They've acknowledged the problem, Isaiah's prophesied the answer, and together they pray that it comes about. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men. Sometimes you cannot mount your own offensive in the sense that you can't go out and get it done. Sometimes mounting the offensive is standing your ground on the promise and praying and expecting to see it happen. Amen? Amen. I'd like to share a much more personal one with you. How many of you have heard of Hebrews 11, the Faith Hall of Fame? I read that and I was uh, in my first Bible and um, I had brilliant Bible students around me. I had a great pastor. I had wonderful elders. It did not make any sense to me to say that faith was the substance of things unseen, the evidence of things hoped for, I just didn't get it. I know I'm a lot slower than everybody else, but when everybody defined faith that way, I didn't get it. But I do understand concepts like clench, turn, and mount an offensive. And Romans 4.18 is the first place I ever understood what real saving faith looked like, and I want to share it with you before we close. Say there when you're there. Here's four, starting in Verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Does that sound like he didn't receive it? He acknowledged the problem that stood before him. Lord, I've heard your promise and I'm looking and in the natural there is not a chance that I can do what you have said to do. But the story doesn't end there. In clinching his problem, he also turns on it with the promise of God. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. I want you to understand that when Abraham was given an impossible task and he was discouraged about it and he was looking at the opposition, he didn't just live in denial. He said, Lord, her womb is not producing life and I am an old man. There is no chance. And yet, because of your promise, I am fully persuaded that we will overcome these obstacles. And he moved forward in that direction and he was given righteousness because of it. You want to know what faith is? Faith is when you look at your circumstances and acknowledge There's no way I can do this on my own. And yet, with your promise, I cannot be denied. I'm turning on my problem. I'm advancing in the faith. And in the name of Jesus, I will gain what is promised. That is the offensive. Men who live in faith, they're going to either inspire you or offend you. And it's going to be Because when others stay on the ropes, they refuse. That is the truth, and it will either inspire you or offend you. Our goal is to inspire each other. I understand that there's many problems. I'm probably the cause of most of them. And yet, I believe that if we grab hold of the promise of God, in spite of ourselves, He's able More than able, He delights in it. More than delights in it, He destined for us to do it. I think He formed this church for a purpose. I don't just mean that in the generic sense, we all have a purpose. I think we're the apple of His eye. (laughs) Another pastor may feel differently about that, but I feel that way. I'm prouder to be right here and in my home on a Monday night teaching than I would be to do anything else in the world. Which leads me to one other thing while we talk about Abraham. Is it okay if I share one more thing with you? Could you put John 8 in verse 56 on the board? Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, how far between Abraham and Jesus? A couple thousand years. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Let us think about how Abraham was called for a minute in the idea of clinch, turn, mount, and offensive, there is one major problem that plagues most of us. How many of you been saved a little while? Anybody been saved longer than a month? Been saved longer than six months? Anybody been saved longer than a few years? Okay, so you're veterans in the faith, right? When the Lord told you something about your life, something about your calling, for the rest of your life then, Have you carried the conception that He gave you at that moment as to what it would look like? See, He spoke to me out of the book of Matthew while I was reading it. And I had a certain idea then what this would look like. When He said to me that, when He said certain things to me, I began to visualize them. How could you not? Right? What happens when your life looks differently than you visualized it? Some people can glorify God in that situation, And other people begin to fight with feelings of disappointment in that situation. Is that a fair assessment? I'd like you to think about Abraham. In Genesis 12, verses 2 through 3, I will make you into a great nation. Is that a good promise? Okay, let's let's bring this home. Peter, I said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Now, I'd have to be God to say it. How big are you thinking? (laughs) I mean... I'm going to be a great nation. You're probably not thinking of uh, problems like having a mop florist after that, are you? How many of you received a call from God and you, you thought, wow, because it is wow. What do you think Abraham thought when he got this word from God? And he says, and I will bless you. Now, let's, let's go a step further. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Do you think he's visualizing having to take out the diaper pail yet? Probably not. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all people on earth will be blessed through you. Somebody say international ministry. International ministry. How many Christians do you know that believe that God's going to use them to touch the world? Well, that's what Abraham was called to. That's Genesis 12. In Genesis 13, we have a little dispute with Lot. I bet in Genesis 12, Abraham was not anticipating what was about to happen with Lot. huh? By the time you get to Genesis 14, Abraham has to go to war with five kings over Lot. I bet he was not anticipating that when he was going to have a worldwide ministry. By the time you get to Genesis 16... We have a little problem with Hagar, right? And the resulting Ishmael. I bet he was not thinking about that on the day he was going to receive a worldwide ministry. How much do you think this competes with the expectations that he had when God said to him, I'm going to bless the whole world through you? Did his expectation of the way that his ministry would look have anything to do with some of these mistakes? Did it help produce Ishmael? I've known people that believe they were a prophet to the nations. The problem is, God seems to have anointed them to be decent businessmen and not at all a prophet. And they live in a certain level of frustration to prove that they're a prophet to the nations and a certain level of disappointment because they're obviously not. I'm not here to destroy faith. That is not the point. But only in the crazy charismatic zoo could we stand and claim in quote-unquote faith the kind of things that deny all possible spiritual discernment. This has to do with covering selfish ambition with a message of faith. He wants to be a prophet to the nation, but God never said that to him. The proof of that is it's not happened. It's not going to happen. Nobody around him who loves the Lord sees him that way, but he insists on seeing himself that way. Now, is that just only an isolated, lonely bunch? Or did even Peter, didn't Peter call in Matthew 16, 16, Jesus, Lord, and Messiah? Later in the same chapter, in Matthew 16, 22, doesn't he say, Oh, Lord, never? How does that happen? That happens when you visualize Lord and Messiah a certain way, and now He's saying something that didn't match your visualization, and you find yourself at odds with God. What I'm getting at here, and we're going to close, is in clenching, turning, mounting, an offensive, you're going to have to have a promise that actually is from God to you. Or else you're not mounting an offensive, you're at the mountain of misunderstanding. And it happens. It happens all of the time. And let me tell you about the mountain of misunderstanding. The most glorious ministry call, like Abraham's. By the way, when do you think he saw the day of Jesus? How about Genesis 22, he finally has a son, right? Whole world's going to be blessed, and my boy is finally here, the child of promise. What did God say to him? Take your son, your only son, the one that you love, up on Mount Moriah. Do you think he ever visualized that in Genesis 12? But it is the way in which he becomes a blessing to the whole world. The mountain of misunderstanding is something that has shipwrecked many Christians and I want to tell you why. From a distance, the mountain that you're looking at is beautiful. The call of God is majestic and it's glorious because you're a long ways from it and you can have so many conceptions of what it's like. You might decide to ski down its slopes. You might decide that you're going to go whitewater rafting on it and all of those things, but you have no idea how to get from here to there and all of the Genesis 13, 14, and 16 that you have to go through to get to it. And somewhere in there you can get discouraged. And you can begin to go, why is God sending sin cherub against me? Why is this happening? It's happening to develop character in you because when you get to the mountain, it's going to look different than you visualized it as. Yes. So now you're at the foot of the mountain. And what you could picture inside of your hands like this in the distance, and it was majestic and it was glorious, suddenly it's got a lot of steep, rocky, jagged edges. He said, but this is hard. This is the place where half the time you decide that it's somebody else's calling. It's not yours. I mean, you know what I'm going to do now that I've perfected this? I've gotten right up to the foot of the mountain. I'm going to bless who will do it. Is there anybody here that will do it? I'm going to bless you with it. Because it's a whole lot harder to climb the mountain than it was to look at it in the distance. Are you hearing me? While we're on that subject, though, do you need to climb the mountain. We have this idea that if it's anointed, if it's, if it's God, then somehow or another it all just supernaturally comes together. I want to tell you there's two enormous misconceptions. One is that you're, if you're anointed, it's easy. That is not true. It, it's never been true. Jesus was as anointed as they get. Do you think the crucifixion was easy? Oh, just be led by your peace, brother. How much peace do you think He felt while He was hanging on the cross? How much peace do you think he felt in the Garden of Gethsemane? The work of God can be agonizingly hard. The first one is that, that it's easy if it's anointed. The second is that spiritual warfare happens in a moment. It doesn't. Spiritual warfare is not the moment that somebody put a gun to your head. That's not it. It's the decade of anticipating. It's the decade of moving forward despite all discouragement. Spiritual warfare is a prolonged battle, not a moment. If we're going to climb the mountain, not just get from the beginning, but all the way to the mountain, there's going to be a lot of clinching, turning, mounting, and offensive. There's going to be battle after battle after battle, and it lasts decades. Now that you're at the mountain and you're climbing your calling, and you're looking around at all that is there, you look back and go, this is not what I signed up for. But it is. It is what you signed up for. You just didn't know all that would be required of you. This is why Jesus said in the very beginning, if you want to find your own life, you're going to lose it. But if you will lose your life, you'll find it. In other words, son, I can't possibly explain to you what is going to be required of you to get to the top of that mountain. You don't have a frame of reference for this. So I'm going to tell you, just consider that you lost everything. Consider that you've already sold everything. Consider that you've already given all. In fact, just consider that you died right now, and the only thing that you live to do is my will. And now you're going to be fine. It's going to be fun. It'll be a light burden, an easy burden. Are you hearing me? I've been doing this 21 years now. It had not gotten any easier, and I enjoy it more every year, even though it's harder. And I told Matthew today while we were driving the car, I said, the stakes only go up, don't they? More people dependent on us. More people, more, more, more. What? I know more people that are dissatisfied, though, because their life doesn't look like they thought it would look at this point. That is a tool of the devil. Grab hold of it. Pull it to you and say, Lord, I have false or unmet expectations. And I need your promise to turn this around. Yeah. And then you advance in that new direction. Yeah. Otherwise, you will go your entire life believing that you're a five-fold teacher. Instead, God called you to teach Sunday school. And instead of being excited and excelling at teaching Sunday school, you're disappointed that you're not responsible for the teaching of North America. I know a man that was anointed to disciple men. He was anointed to lead others into the presence of God like very few I've ever met. The problem is he wanted so much more than that. The thing that God designed him to do that actually made him a success, he turned his back on for the thing that he wanted and he lost both. I hope you can hear what I'm telling you today because we are in a battle and I want to win. Is it worth climbing the mountain? Here's our last verse at 35 minutes. We have a personal bet among the pastors as to whether we could do this. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Is it worth climbing the mountain? You know what's at the top of the mountain? Your king is waiting there going, you forsook all for me. You took up your cross daily and denied yourself and followed me and you will hear at the mountain... At the top of the mountain, you will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. I want to tell you that is everything. If you don't live for those words, if that's not your undying passion, you might need to get born again one more time. Last time didn't work. That is my passion. Along the way, I've hurt more people than I wanted. I've been hurt more than I wanted. Along the way, there have been a lot of dings, bruises, valleys, creeks, stitches, broken bones, you name it. But I'm still climbing my mountain. And wherever I have the opportunity to heal and bring restoration, whether I hurt you or not, I'll try. What I won't do is stop climbing the mountain. Amen? Could we stand to our feet?